Okay. Welcome to Progressive News Network on Blog Talk Radio. I'm Janine Moloff, your producer and host. Now, we've been doing a series recently, and this is the third week of the series, on a report that was prepared entitled the Moscow, the Moscow Project. And it really does, it investigated whether or not Trump, Donald Trump was a Russian asset. Uh, and again, to repeat, a, an asset in spy terms, if you are, isn't somebody who's an actual agent. They're not an actual spy, but it's somebody who basically is useful to an enemy state. And it's along a range, so it could be anybody from what they call kind of unflatteringly, you know, a useful idiot to somebody who is profiting from this illegitimate real relationship and just lets things happen, all right? So this is part three of it, and if you saw our advert, it says Trump is Russian asset and Ukraine war arms, Ukraine war arms profiteers. So we have a couple of things going on, so we're just going to go straight into it. Uh, before we start, again, I want to emphasize, this is not the kind of show where you can call in and I will take questions. I do that on occasion, and if I plan on doing it, I will announce it at the beginning of the show and say that the last 10 minutes of the broadcast will set aside for questions. Um, if I don't say that during the, at the beginning of the broadcast, you can pretty much guess it's not going to happen. Again, those with the PNN, we pay for this airtime. This isn't Fox. And we're not going to allow conservative trolls to come and, as you will, freeload on our time. It's not going to happen. So here we go on this Sunday. Uh, I'm going to continue the series on Donald Trump as a Russian asset. Uh, going back to the Moscow Project, Chapter 3, this chapter is titled Cultivating an Asset 2009 to 2013, How Donald Trump Became the Perfect Candidate for Russia's Assault on American Democracy. And that's the title. And the Moscow Project is part of an initiative of the Center for American Progress. Now, oops, our second story, a little technical issue here. Let me see if I can get at it now. Our second story is about the Russian war against the people of Ukraine and how the arms industry internationally is profiting. There's evidence to support the accusation that NATO leaders saw Russian aggression as a profit opportunity based on an article published in Truthout. And then finally, there's our Jackass of the Week Award. This is a feature I really enjoy. And it goes to... Are you waiting? GOP Republican, GOP Indiana Senator Mike Brown, who not only made a fool of himself at Judge Ketanji Brown Jackson's SCOTUS hearings, Brown stated that he thought the SCOTUS should revoke the Lovings decision, which legalized inter, inter excuse me, which legalized interracial marriage. Those of you who don't know, Judge Ketanji Brown Jackson has an interracial marriage, and a couple of beautiful teenage children. So attacking that very law, that, uh, that very ruling that the SCOTUS passed allowing for interracial marriage wasn't just insulting to the judge. It, it had to have hurt, and it was intended to, and it was shameful what, what Senator Brown did. Furthermore, Brown uh, went on to make statements 
against the Supreme Court decisions that not only legalized interracial marriage, but also against the right to birth control, not abortion, to birth control itself. So let's get going. So first we're going we're gonna to start with um, Chapter 3 on the Moscow Report titled Cultivating an Asset. The years covered are 2009 to 2013. Uh, the rest of the title, again, How Donald Trump Became the Perfect Candidate for Russia's Assault on American Democracy. Here we go. So we know that Russia, and the United States as well, but the Russians interfered with our politics, especially in the West. And why did they do that? Well, they want to undermine democracy and stability in other nations. And at the point that they really started really courting the Donald, if you will, according to this report, he was a political novice. But Trump had uh, already stated that he had admiration for Putin and the way he did things. And, you know, Putin also saw, because when you talk about Russia, you can't say Russia without saying Putin, okay? Putin is the dictator, period. Nothing happens in Russia, including big business, unless it expressly has Vladimir Putin's approval. That's it. You know, today on NBC, uh, this reporter was interviewing one of the billionaire oligarchs in his uh, uh, UK mansion. Because the poor billionaire had all his assets frozen. He couldn't, he couldn't uh, uh, access any funds. And he was just crying because, well, you know, we didn't do anything wrong. Well, you know, the way Putin operates, the way Trump operates, it's modeled on the old mafia model, where you don't actually state in clear terms that you want a crime committed. You just hint at it. And the hint includes... Uh, uh, an implied threat if you don't follow through and implied rewards if you do. And they think this gives them plausible deniability, but, you know, a, a really dedicated and good prosecutor can get through that. So, you know, we have this Donald Trump was just like the perfect patsy, you know, uh, any of you that remember the old book the Man and movie, The Manchurian Candidate? Hello. You could argue that in a way Trump was the Manchurian candidate, that he was, except it was more the Russian candidate. You know, he was the asset, the, um, you know, the useful idiot that they could, that they could uh, take advantage of. Now, we ha I had um, an alleged progressive contact me on Facebook about an earlier show on this same issue, and that particular uh, person, you know, was making the, you know, the specious claim, well, you know, the Democrats, Hillary Clinton was behind it, yada, yada, yada. Uh, okay, I, I don't necessarily agree with him, but that's not the point. The point that this alleged progressive missed, maybe by choice or not, is that we had somebody in office who was severely compromised, as Donald Trump was. Russian oligarchs funneled massive cash infusions into the Trump organization, and they got very little back in return. Now, people like that don't put money, hundreds of millions of dollars, into your businesses and not expect something in return. 
let's be honest, Trump went bankrupt six times. Okay, and it wasn't just for mismanagement. He just refused to pay people. This is a, rec- a matter of record. Let's be honest about this. So anyway, Trump's political rise. This report um, mentions a journalist named Luke Harding. Harding is the author of a book called Collusion, Secret Meetings, Dirty Money, and How Russia Helped Donald Trump Win. And I'm going to talk as long as I can today because my computer is having a problem holding a charge. So um, Russia, according to Harding's book, has been interested in Donald Trump since, ni- since at least 1987. And Trump, that's when Trump visited Moscow with the Russian ambassador to the United States, Yuri Dubinin. And Harding reported that on documents, uh, as documented by The Guardian, the nation of Czechoslovakia spied on Trump in the 70s and 80s when he was married to his first wife, Ivana Trump, who was born in the Czech Republic. And according to Harding, the Czech government really targeted Trump specifically because he had a high profile as a businessman who also had some political ambitions. And all of that is bad enough, but where Harding goes on is to say at that time the Czech government was documented as having close ties to the KGB as documented by uh, the Guardian. All right? And at that period of time in the 70s and 80s, who was high up in the KGB? Vladimir Putin. Okay? So Harding admitted they don't really know if the KGB and the Czech government shared information specifically on Trump, but, you know, there's a conflict of interest there already. Uh, And then when you look at the 2016 uh, election, the natural starting point for the relationship is Trump's rise to political relevance in the early 2010s. And he did so basically as a racist. You know, he crusaded against Barack Obama, even though ironically in 08, Trump actually liked Obama and, you know, said he thought that Trump was quoted saying, quote, I think Obama has a chance to go down as a great president. Uh, But then in 2011, Trump soured on Obama and he started this whole birther nonsense, you know, which in case, I doubt if he's listening, but in case Donald Trump or any of his little acolytes are listening, Barack Obama was born in Hawaii. And the last time I checked, Hawaii was a state in the United States, which makes Barack Obama a natural-born American citizen. Get over your stupid selves. Anyway, so I'm watching my battery because this is, ooh, all right. Anyway, uh, and then on March 23rd of 2011, that same year, Trump was on the Today Show, and this is as documented by the L.A. Times, where he expressed some, quote, real doubts about Obama's birthplace. And apparently Trump sent some investigators to Hawaii to explore the, I guess, the circumstances surrounding the birth of Barack Obama there. Now, I guess the question in my mind's eye is, why was a moron like Trump on the Today Show in the first place? What, just, does the Today Show have nothing better to do than just have rich people and celebrities on the show. I remember when the Today Show used to be an actually pretty decent early morning news show. But, you know, now it's turned into vapid chatter. 
So there was another Today appearance on April 7th of 2011. Trump questioned Obama's citizenship again. Um, And even after President Obama released his birth certificate, Trump kept on with this nonsense because let's face facts. Donald Trump may not be academically bright, but he is clever enough to know that it's this racist trope that was giving him more political advancement, period. And that's what the GOP's lowered itself to. The GOP has nothing to offer any of us except racism, misogyny, religious bigotry, and so on. The GOP of Trump has turned into a white supremacist, neo-Nazi hate group, period. So Trump around 2011 was flirting with the idea of running for POTUS for president, but he didn't really gain any traction. But he gained enough traction that Mitt Romney tried to get his endorsement. Uh, But Trump kept promoting this conspiracy theory on the birtherism. And according to Harding, Quote, the Kremlin has a long and well-documented history of exploiting racial tensions in its efforts to influence politics abroad. And quite a few of the fringe racist parties in the EU, like France's National Front, the UK Independence Party, and the Alternative for Germany, they're racist groups. Let's just be honest, okay? So, And, and Russia likes to push this because, again, they push they try and cause as much division within these nations as possible so they can actually defeat them from within. And, you know, using the actual um, tools of democracy against itself, against itself, actually. And that's exactly what Hitler and his propagandists did, Putin borrowing straight from the playbook. So let's, you know, let's move on here, okay? Watching my battery, unfortunately. Uh, and, and and that's what's really going on here, all right? And Trump wrote that birtherism nonsense uh, to build a bigger political uh, uh, organization, if you will. And goes on, again, I, I this one progress, person claiming to be a progressive, accusing me of, you know, I'm being a shill for Hillary Clinton, and I was going, okay, first of all, I'm going to be clear about this. I'm a progressive. I don't really consider myself a Democrat or a Republican. I'm a progressive, period. Um, And as for Hillary herself, I'm not going to listen to gossip, but my problem with Hillary Clinton's stance was neoliberal fiscal policy, period. Nothing else. The fact that in... Uh, the eyes of many sexes, she was uppity. Well, I like that part. I'm uppity too. But it was just ne- it's neoliberalism things that I disagreed with. Nothing else. So this report goes into the dossier compiled by former MI6 agent Christopher Steele, known as the Steele dossier. And according to this, Trump began um, giving feeding Russian intelligence information. You know, around the same time he was pushing his birtherism crap. And this is as documented by the Moscow Project. Now, the dossier cited four sources. Uh, There were two officials in Russia. One was a senior former intelligence official, and one was a senior former ministry official. There were also two Russian expatriates. And they all claimed that Trump 
did have a relationship with Russian intelligence for at least five years. Uh, I, I'd have to look at the name of the law, but there is a, a law in the United States that forbids anyone outside of the State Department or the president from conducting any sort of foreign affairs. Now, it seems to me that Donald Trump broke that law, but I don't see anybody prosecuting him. So, again, according to the Moscow Project, quote, speaking to a trusted compatriot in June 2016, sources A and B, a senior Russian foreign ministry figure and a former top-level Russian intelligence officer still active inside the Kremlin, respectively, the Russian authorities had been cultivating and supporting U.S. Republican presidential candidate Donald Trump for at least five years. Source close to Trump campaign, however, confirms regular exchange with Kremlin has existed for at least eight years, including intelligence fed back to Russia on oligarchs' activities in the U.S. Now, the Steele dossier also alleges that Trump was providing information on Russian oligarchs living on living in Trump properties. And that is consistent with the way intelligence services operate. Uh, often, intelligence services spies, if you will, they start with simple requests, uh, and the target or the passy doesn't realize that they've already become an intelligence asset. Um, but it also is consistent with Russia, with Putin's efforts to keep tabs on oligarchs living abroad. Now, Trump and members of his campaign that were named in the dossier, they've basically um, denied that any of this is true. And, uh, you know, that's predictable. No shock there. Okay, checking my battery again. Doggone it. All right, so we're going to cut this one a little short because I don't want to totally lose this. Um, there was the Miss Universe pageant in 2013. Um, in planning and executing the pageant, according to Bloomberg, Trump met with quite a few individuals who would resurface during his presidential campaign, including Rob Goldstone, a music producer, who arranged the June 9, 2016 meeting in Trump Tower, Azerbaijani Russian oligarch Ariz Agalarov, and his pop star son, Eamon, on whose behalf Goldstone wrote, reached out to arrange the June 9th meeting, and I'm not sure I can say this right. Ike Kavaladze, that's an executive in Agalarov's real estate company. All these actions form the basis of a 2000 Government Accountability Office report on Russian money laundering tactics and who attended the June 9th meeting. Now, the report doesn't allege any illegal behavior by Kavaladze. Uh, he's denied wrongdoing. But once again, there was enough enough red flags there to trigger a government accountability office report as documented by the New York Times in 2000 on Russian money laundering scheme and specific attendees of that June 9th meeting with Trump. Okay? It's even if, let's say, Trump didn't have anything to do with this or didn't know, there's the appearance of a conflict of interest. And there's too much of that. All right? You know, it's amazing how nowadays, to give you something to compare against, if you apply for just a simple clerical job or you know, job bagging groceries, you have to go through a lot of times a criminal background check. 
But these high flyers, they can have blatant conflicts of interest and get away with it. All right. So the Steele dossier describes that particular trip as a critical juncture, quote, in Russia's cultivation of Trump as an asset. And on this trip, Steele alleges, quote, that Russia obtained compromat on Trump in the form of a compromising video. Uh, compromat is this idea that they get you in some sort of compromising situation that they can blackmail you with. Uh, I'm not sure. It didn't specify whether or not this was the, you know, the P video or not, I don't know. I'm not going to go there. Um, Trump denies the event occurred uh, with this compromat video. His personal bodyguard was a man named, at the time was a man named Keith Schiller. Schiller testified, according to NBC News, before Congress, that he turned down an offer from a Russian to, quote, send five women to Trump's hotel room. Um, and that report, this report says, quote, though Schiller presented the story as exculpatory, uh, he also said he only stayed by the door to Trump's hotel for part of the night, leaving open the possibility that the encounter may have occurred after Schiller left. Okay, the report goes on to say, quote, the episode also comports with Russia's known tendency to produce compromise on visiting government officials and business elite by bugging their hotel rooms and orchestrating embarrassing sexual encounters. Um, it's just something, I'll tell you. Um, we do know that Donald Trump did court Russia-based financing for many of his projects, not just in the U.S., but also in Russia and other places like um, Soviet countries, former Soviet countries like Georgia, Azerbaijan, and Kazakhstan. Now, that in and of itself isn't necessarily illegal, but that's the problem with all of this. Nobody does business in Russia, in Putin's Russia, without Putin's express consent. Not even the oligarchs, and they know this. They're all complicit. So if Trump's courting Russian-based financing, you know, he, had, he or his people had to know that this was compromised in some way, that it was not a fully legitimate situation. In fact, one of the things that attracted the Russians, according to the report, to Trump was, quote, the Trump's organization's reputation for skimping on due diligence with regard to its clientele and business partners, end quote. Okay? And, and actually, if you're in the money laundering business, you look for an organization that's willing to look the other direction when evidence shows up that money laundering is taking place. You know, once again, a lot of these Russian oligarchs bought these, you know, multi-million dollar um, condominiums in, on Trump properties, and they bought hundreds of them, or maybe not hundreds. They bought they quite a, quite a few, and they paid cash. That's a red flag. Anybody who pays cash for a home, you have to question the source of the money. That's not legitimate because they want, the reason you get a bank loan is because there's a paper trail. The reason why money launderers don't want a bank loan is because there's a paper trail. With cash, there's no paper trail. Okay, in fact, it could even be counterfeit. You wouldn't know. So, you know, Donald Trump, whether it's through the Miss Universe pageant or whatever, he often boasted about 
you know, the close relationship he had with Putin. He often, you know, implied receiving a gift from or speaking, quote, indirectly and directly with President Putin, who could not have been nicer, end quote. So once again, we have this issue. Now, there are some conservatives as well as alleged progressives, as I said before, that claim the Steele dossier is to use Trump's childish rhetoric fake. These same critics focus on the compromat issue, especially compromat in the sexual arena. Personally, my opinion is that Trump was compromised, again, due to the massive infusion of cash he received from Russian interests and from the common knowledge, again, that no one does business with Russia via oligarchs or anyone else without Putin's permission, period. Okay, now we're going to move on to our next story. And this is for a look at the genocide Russia is committing against the people of Ukraine and questioning who is profiting from this crime against humanity. And this is a piece that was published in Truthout. Uh, the author is Jonathan Ning. It's spelled N-G. And he received his Ph.D. in history at Northwestern University, researching U.S. interventionism in Latin America. Um, Right now, he works as a postdoc fellow at the University of Tulsa. So the, the uh, title of it is Arms Industry Sees Ukraine Conflict as an Opportunity, Not a Crisis. A member of Ukraine's armed forces, oh, okay, that's just it. So Arms Industry Sees Ukraine Conflict as an Opportunity, Not a Crisis. And this was published in the beginning of March. Now, we all seen that, that infamous photograph where Putin is at this incredibly huge table, and they say it's 13 feet. It looks bigger than that. Um, and, you know, mainstream news is pushed where Putin's sitting at one end, and there's a few people at the other end, and it, it's, it looks insane, right? Um, is there a note the corporate media didn't really tell you often who that, who that other leader was sitting at the table? Well, it was French President Emmanuel Macron. Now, their meeting wasn't about that title or Putin being a germaphobe, which I don't know if he is or isn't, but Macron was there. He was supposedly there to discuss um, the crisis in Ukraine, all right? Now, the talk really did break down into expansion of NATO, and then it didn't re- nothing happened except that crazy photograph. But again, the corporate media keeps pushing the photo, which blurs the identities of the other players without any meaningful context. Now, I want to make this perfectly clear. I despise Vladimir Putin. As far as I'm concerned, Putin is a Hitler wannabe, period. That being said, however, you know, Putin keeps saying, you know, he hates NATO, he hates NATO. The thing is, NATO isn't, hasn't really been innocent either. What's turned out is that over the past year, a Macron of France, uh, Macron is the leading EU peace negotiator, ironically, but at the same time, Macron's led an arms sales campaign, according to Reuters, where he has really exploited the, the tension of the Ukrainian-Russian war as an opportunity to strengthen the French bottom line. Now, the trade press, according to aerotime.aero, reported that Macron hoped to sell Rafali fighter jets to Ukraine, quote, breaking into the former bastion of Russian industry, end quote. This article goes on to say Macron isn't the only one that's using his, his position 
as a leader of a sovereign nation to benefit arms manufacturers. Apparently, NATO contractors really openly embrace this Russian-Ukrainian war as, quote, sound business. This is something that we really should look at more. So, for instance, in January, there's a quote here from Raytheon CEO Greg Hayes. And Mr. the Raytheon CEO cited, quote, tensions in Europe as an opportunity saying, quote, I fully expect we're going to see some benefit, end quote. According to also CEO Jim Taslett of Lockheed Martin um, also emphasized the benefits of, quote, great power competition, end quote, in the EU to shareholders of Lockheed Martin. February 24th, Russia invaded Ukraine. Okay, so January they're talking about this, and February 24th, Russia attacks Ukraine. Keep in mind, Putin has ordered they've bombed civilian targets, cities, children's and maternity hospitals, art galleries, schools, and so on. And as and they blocked the way for uh, Ukrainians, you know, Ukrainian civilians, women, children, and elderly to escape. While all this was going on, according to this article and according to Reuters, the stock value of those same arms manufacturers soared, went through the roof. According to this article, quote, the spiraling conflict over Ukraine dramatizes the power of militarism and the influence of defense contractors, end quote. And this is really the central theme, in my opinion, for the military-industrial complex. This is this need to keep pushing markets to constantly have endless profit. And it goes hand in hand with, yes, imperialism. And this has pushed NATO expansion. And it also at the same time inflames wars, not only in Eastern Europe, but also in Yemen. The, the, the man who wrote this article really did a beautiful job. Now, on this uh, about NATO itself. The conflict with Russia really traces that, and I'm not going to call it conflict, the present war that Russia is waging against Ukraine and possibly the rest of the EU, this could really backfire on them, um, traces all the way back to the near end of the Cold War. As the Cold War was ending, military spending was also throttling down. And the arms manufacturers, both in the U.S. and in other NATO nations, were getting very worried so much so that in 1993, according to this and according to the Washington Post, in 1993, then Deputy, then Deputy Secretary of Defense William Perry had this, real, had this meeting with executives from the arms manufacturers uh, uh, industry. And the insiders that attended it referred to it as the Last Supper. I kid you not. Then uh, Bill Perry then told his guests that there were going to be some major blows to the U.S. military budget, and he was recommending industry consolidation. And then you saw this wave of mergers and takeovers, and then you saw Lockheed, Lockheed Northrop, Boeing, and Raytheon becoming larger because of those mergers and takeovers. Smaller defense contractors just went out of business. 
and these new giants, these new consolidated arms manufacturers started, you know, looking at Eastern Europe as their new market to sell their weapons, you know, using the Soviet Union or Russia now as the boogeyman. And according to veteran salesman, according to versobooks.com, veteran salesman Dick Pawlowski recalled, quote, Lockheed began looking at Poland right after the wall came down. There were contractors flooding through all those countries, end quote. And we found that, yes, these arms manufacturers were also the most aggressive lobbyists for NATO expansion. So you saw this really, I would say, almost incestuous relationship between arms, the arms manufacturing industry and NATO nations together, all right? Something that should have never been allowed to happen. To quote from this article, quote, the security umbrella, in other words, NATO, was not simply between NATO and, and, and the arms manufacturers, quote, the security umbrella was not simply a formidable alliance, but also a tantalizing market. Okay. However, lobbyists faced a major obstacle, end quote. And who was, what was the obstacle? Well, 1990, according to the NSA archive at George Washington University Education Campus, then-Secretary of State James Baker had made a promise to then-Soviet leader Mikhail Gorbachev. And what Baker proposed was that if Gorbachev allowed a, a reunited Germany, it had been divided. If Gorbachev allowed Germany to reunite, I'm sorry, let me take it back. James Baker promised that if Gorbachev allowed the newly reunited Germany to join NATO, that NATO itself would move, quote, not one inch eastward. I'm going to repeat that, okay, just to make sure. It's hard for sometimes uh, – Millennials and Generation Z to realize this, but, you know, before then, Germany had been divided, East Germany, West Germany. Russia controlled East Germany as a satellite. West Germany was part of, of the European bloc. And so in 1990, then Secretary of State James Baker made this promise to Soviet leader Gorbachev. And the promise was that if Gorbachev allowed this newly reunited Germany to join NATO, that NATO itself would promise that they would not go, they would not go one inch eastward, period. Now, I'm sure Gorbachev banked on that opinion, but here's the problem. The Secretary of State, in fact, the U.S. itself, we had no right to make that promise, period. Just as Putin's Russia has no right to attack Ukraine as it's doing, we had no right to ensure that European nations would not buck Russia's grip. It's not our nation. But the lobbyists liked it. Well, the lobbyists remained hopeful, okay? I, let me go back here. I'm watching the battery at the same time, so I'm a little, little distracted here. So the lobbyists weren't happy with James Baker, the then Secretary of State, but they kind of kept their hope there, okay? Um, and so there were interests in the arms manufacturing industry that wanted to push for NATO expansion. And why did they want NATO expansion? So they could sell weapons to these new NATO nations to, quote, 
protect them from Russia. Now, don't get me wrong. Russia under Putin is a danger to just about everybody. But it's kind of like this, this NATO expansion is almost like waving a red flag in front of a bull. And then you're shocked when the bull charges. So apparently the New York Times reported in 1997 uh, the following headline, Arms Makers See Bonanza in Selling NATO Expansion. The newspaper also noted, according to the Chicago Tribune, that, quote, expansion of the North North Atlantic Treaty Organization, in other words, NATO, first to Poland, Hungary, and the Czech Republic, and then possibly to more than a dozen other countries, would offer arms makers a new and hugely lucrative market. Okay, so it would expand NATO. All right, and then the new alliance members to the arms manufacturers meant new clients. Because, this is the part that you're not told often, NATO would and does require these new nations to buy military equipment from the West. Kind of sounds like the old protection racket of the mafia now, doesn't it? Only with better suits from Brooks Brothers. It sounds like that because basically it is. Lobbyists came into D.C., you know, they courted the legislatures. Um, Vice President Bruce Jackson of Lockheed went on to become the uh, president of the advocacy organization uh, called the U.S. Committee to Expand NATO. And Jackson uh, remembered, according to uh, basically, that there were extravagant meals he hosted at this mansion the mansion was owned by this Republican named Julie Finley. And among all the different um, perks featured, quote, an endless wine cellar, end quote. Anyway, um, so they wanted NATO to expand. And they traded off. The arms manufacturing industry met with these leaders. And between NATO leaders and the arms manufacturing industry, they decided, we'll expand NATO, but we're going to require these new NATO nations to buy weapons from the West, from Western nations from and Western companies. So you had this incestuous relationship that should never have been. Um, Journalist Andrew Cockburn explained, quote, educating the Senate about NATO was our chief mission. We'd have four or five senators over every night, and we'd drink Julie's wine, from Julie Finley, that is. And the lobby pressure just kept going. Uh, Romanian Ambassador Mirsa Jonah was quoted as saying, quote, the most interested corporations are the defense corporations because they have a direct interest in the issue. And this article goes on to say Bell Helicopter, Lockheed Martin, and several other firms even funded Romania's lobbying machine during its bid for NATO membership. Now, here's what happens. So you have this situation now where NATO nations got together with the arms manufacturing industry, and they said, look, we're going to push for NATO expansion, and we're going to help these politicians in their political goals, and in return these NATO leaders are going to tell these new nations that are being admitted that they have to buy weapons from the West 
from Western nations, from Western companies. Okay. Well, what happened to that promise that James Baker made to Gorbachev that NATO wouldn't expand that one inch forward? Obviously, the policymakers reneged on that promise. And they, in 1999, they, NATO admitted Poland, Hungary, and the Czech Republic. Now, people are getting a little upset with me because they're feeling kind of, I guess, waxing sympathetic. You know, Madeleine Albright passed away. She was the first woman to be Secretary of State in the U.S. But she had a part in this, too. Okay? Uh, according to Brookings, the Brookings Institute, Madeleine Albright, who was then Secretary of State during the Clinton administration, cooperated uh, with the Jackson campaign. Okay? In other words, Bruce Jackson, Vice President of Lockheed, was part of this advocacy group on the U, called the U.S. Committee to Expand NATO. And, you know, Madeleine Albright and Secretary of State cooperated with that campaign and welcomed them with a hearty, quote, hallelujah, end quote. Now, there was an intellectual architect of the Cold War, a man named George Kennan, who did predict that this was going to have disastrous results. Kennan cautioned, quote, such a decision you know, in other words, to expand NATO, quote, such a decision may be expected to inflame the nationalistic, anti-Western, and militaristic tendencies in Russia, Russian opinion, end quote. And it's not just anti-Western. Putin is evil, in my opinion, but he's not stupid. He doesn't want all these arms on his border. I'm not advocating for him, okay? I... You know, the day Vladimir Putin drops dead, I'm going to throw a party. I'm sure the Russian people are sick of him too. But I'm just saying, NATO is not innocent in this either. And NATO didn't seem to care. You know, here Macron was trying to negotiate with Putin, even though Macron and other NATO countries helped cause this in their quest for what they call infinite war. That's the thing. These Political leaders are helping to push this very concept of having infinite war, which will ensure, pretty much guarantee that arms manufacturers will have, will have a constant market. Okay. Now, let's go on. Very few of them listened to Kennan. Okay, turns out Kennan was right. Um, this author listed a former assistant secretary of defense, Chaz Freeman, uh, according to this Verso books, he describes the mentality of policymakers. Quote, the Russians are down, let's give them another kick. Um, and then there was a quote, a quote uh, there was, excuse me, after that, um, Jackson, you know, the guy who actually headed up the advocacy group, the U.S. Committee to Expand NATO. Yeah, that guy. Um, he was quoted as saying, quote, fuck Russia is a proud and long tradition of, in U.S. foreign policy. Now, later on, Mr. Jackson became chairman of the Committee for the Liberation of Iraq, you know, and that just paved the way for the 03 war in Iraq, which was a big industry handout, and keep in mind, the war in Iraq was based on a pile of lies. P. 
period. They didn't have weapons of mass destruction. But this is what happened. The arms manufacturers are acting pretty much like drug dealers. All right? They help incite and create the need to keep to keep their clients hooked on their drug of choice. And in this instance, it's weapons and war. And unfortunately, innocents on all sides are the ones that suffer while the rich get richer. And within two decades, there were 14 Central and Eastern European countries that joined NATO, according to the Washington Post. Okay? Keep in mind, NATO was originally created to just contain the, the old Soviet Union. Okay? But what's happened is, after World War II, post-war expansion of NATO benefited the arms industry, again, as I said before, because they increased their market. Now targeting Ukraine. All right. We know that in 2014, the U.S. backed the removal of then-Ukrainian pres- then President Viktor Yankovych. Now, Yankovych opposed NATO membership, and the Russian government was fearful that ousting him would bring, would bring Ukraine under NATO. Now, instead of trying to calm things down, the Obama administration pushed to kind of slip Ukraine into what they call its sphere of influence. Um, apparently, then, a second sec- then Assistant Secretary of State Victoria Newland, she coordinated regime change, and Newland openly distributed cookies to protesters, and then she um, basically ended the exchange with a, quote, fuck the EU. Now, it wasn't just the Democrats. Uh, at the height of this 2014 uprising, uh, John McCain joined the demonstrators. Now, here McCain was, uh, flanked by leaders of the Svoboda Party, which is fascist. Uh, And according to The Guardian, McCain advocated for regime change, declaring that, quote, America is with you. Now, by then, according to his article, quote, newly minted NATO members had bought nearly $17 billion with a B in American weapons. And that coincided with increased military installations across uh, Eastern Europe, including six NATO command posts. Okay. So Russia responded. They annexed Crimea. They intervened in Donbass and and took that over. And this is what we're dealing with now. Okay. So according to Johnson, no, the NATO expansion, quote, was a key insider of this crisis. And quote, the conflagration was a gift to the arms industry. End quote. Now, he also says that within a period of five years, according to SIPRI.org, major weapons exports from the U.S. increased 23%. French exports of weapons registered a 72% leap. Okay? European military spending hit record heights, according to EDA, Europa.eu. As the tensions kept getting worse, Supreme Commander Philip Breedlove of NATO, according to The Intercept, 
uh, inflated the threats, calling Russia, quote, a long-term existential threat to the United States. Apparently, Breedlove, Breedlove falsified information about Russian troop movements during the first two years of the conflict. We're still talking about Crimea. Um, a senior fellow at the Brookings Institute concluded that the whole idea was to, quote, goad Europeans into jacking up defense spending, end quote. And it succeeded. The Stockholm International Peace Research Institute, that's CIPRI, um, reported there was a significant leap in military spending within the EU. Uh, even though Russian spending, according to this in 2016, equaled only one quarter of the EU NATO budget. Okay. Then in 2016, apparently that same year, Breedlove resigned, uh, but then he joined a group called the Center for New American Security, which is a think tank, which is a bunch of war hawks. And they get a lot of their funding from, guess what? Arms manufacturers. Okay. So this is what we're dealing with right now. All right. We have the problem in, in uh, Yemen as well. Um, the, Yemen, the war in Yemen has attracted NATO contractors, and the NATO contractors back the aggressors, okay? Um, and they exploit the conflict, quote, to sustain industrial capacity, fund weapons development, and achieve economies of scale. And so when you see this, what, what's happening basically is the nations that can afford to buy more weapons are the very nations that seem to be favored by NATO in these different wars. And is this the reason why NATO won't admit Ukraine, you know, and is trying to coddle Putin? Because Putin has the capital, has the funding to buy weapon systems, and Ukraine doesn't? I mean, is this the reason why Joe Biden won't establish a no-fly zone? because no-fly zone would most likely end the war. You know, Russian, Russian jets wouldn't be shot down, fighter jets wouldn't be shot down if they just stopped bombing. So this is really about the revolving door, and it isn't just a metaphor. It's an institution, according to this, pro, according to this report, because, quote, it converts private profit into public policy, at, with Western statesmen, in quotes, pursuing sales with perverse enthusiasm, end quote. Okay. There's this instance where in 2017, Trump visited Saudi Arabia. Um, he was trying to work out a deal with the Sauds, with the Saudis for, uh, uh, for about $110 billion in arms sales. Uh, Jared Kushner arrived before Trump did, and Saudi officials tried to haggle him down. So Kushner called the CEO of Lockheed Martin to ask for a discount. You know, and you have to realize, too, this has been pushed by not only defense contractors, this enthusiasm, but Hollywood moguls, and according to support, even Oprah Winfrey, according to New York Times, welcomed the Saudi prince. Okay, and shame on Oprah, because what's happening, this was Yemen burning, and so let me back up a little bit. Okay, again, I'm still watching my battery. This is very frustrating. Yeah, it's going down. So in 2011, there was a popular revolution, and it toppled Ali Abdullah Saleh. And he had had power for 
like two decades. And then uh, cronies is Abdi Rabu Mansour Hadi became president the following year. He won the election, but he was the only candidate. Okay. Uh, but then there was a plot and another uprising uh, basically kicked Hadi out of power in 2015. Now, that same year, Prince Salman became king of Saudi Arabia, but he, but Prince Salman put a lot of the power into the hands of his son, Mohammed bin Salman. And apparently, the prince, the, the son, Mohammed bin Salman, was afraid that the uprising would, um, you know, basically endanger Saudi Arabia's control over Yemen. So a Saudi-led coalition invaded Yemen, massive carnage. A U.S. intelligence official said there was no plan. They just bombed anything and everything that looked like it might be a target, end quote. And that's the war that attracted NATO contractors. And then you have later on Oprah Winfrey welcoming the same prince that basically attacked innocent Yemen, the innocent people of Yemen. Shame on Oprah. Okay, uh, but again, the Saudi coalition or lead coalition is also the largest arms market for France and other NATO members. And the French Ministry of the Armed Forces was quoted as saying that exports are, quote, necessary for the preservation and development of the French defense technological and industrial base, end quote. In other words, NATO members like France export war. And they export war through exporting weapons so that they can actually keep their capacity to keep war going. And this is an educated way of saying that NATO is pushing the old protection racket, just like the mafia. Now, Macron of France denies that the coalition uses French weapons. And that coalition would have been Saudi Arabia, Egypt, Jordan, UAE, Kuwait, Bahrain, Qatar, Sudan, and Senegal. But statistics say otherwise. The statistics say that between 2015 and 2019, some 20 billion euros, I'm sorry, no, between 2015 and 2019, France awarded some, four, according to Amnesty International, some 14 billion in arms export licenses to the Sauds and 20 billion in licenses to the United Arab Emirates. The CEO of Nexter Systems, a man named Stefan Meyer, Praise the performance of Leclerc tanks in Yemen, claiming that, quote, they have, quote, highly impressed the military re leaders of the region. Emmanuel Macron denies that the French are selling deadly weapons to the Saudi-led coalition that is murdering the people of Yemen who didn't wage war on anybody. Um, you've got these industrialists actually bragging about French arms that they bought and their use as a selling point. In fact, Amnesty International reports that Macron's administration has, quote, systematically lied about its export policy. Okay? And privately, according to Amnesty, officials of the Macron administration have compiled, quote, a very precise list of French materiel deployed in the context of the conflict, including ammunition. Okay? Recently, Macron was one of the first heads of state to meet with Mohammed bin Salman 
after the assassination of journalist Jamal Khashoggi. And it was a sales mission. It was a sales mission. We can go on, but that's what it is. It goes on, uh, while denouncing war, um, quote, every Western producer, according to JSTOR.org, has outfitted those carrying it out. Spanish authorities um, kind of tweak official documents to try and conceal how they're exporting legal, lethal hardware, according to LDario.es. Great Britain's reportedly violated its own arms embargo, according to the Daily Maverick. And the United States hasn't respected export freezes with any consistency, according to warontherocks.com. NATO countries in the Eastern Europe bloc also are exploiting the war. Okay. Between 2012 and 2016, this is the war in Yemen. Eastern Europe, according to the Guardian, awarded at least 1.2 billion in euros in military equipment to the region. And I'm sad to say, quote, according to this article, quote, ironically, a leading Eastern European arms exporter is Ukraine. Okay. So while the West is, we're trying to save Kiev, as we should, you have to make a distinction between the ruling class and the people. The ruling class sold weapons on the black market, and that is according to a parliamentary inquiry that concluded between 1992 and 98 alone, quote, Ukraine lost a staggering $32 billion in military assets as oligarchs pillaged their own army, end quote. So there's, the people of Ukraine have been doubly victimized, not only by the Russians who are waging war against them, but they've been victimized by their own oligarchs. Okay? Um, and that's what this whole thing's about. It's corruption nonstop. All right? Uh, the arms industry relies on this idea of the revolving door. Um, and leading power brokers, and you'll notice some of these names are very well-known in political circles, from the Mitterrands and Chiracs in France to the Thatchers and Blairs in Britain, the Gonzales and Bourbons in Spain, all of these elites, elite families, have, per, quote, have personally profited from the arms trade. Here in the U.S., the industry has about some 700 lobbyists, According to InTheseTimes.com, almost three-fourths of these lobbyists work for the federal government first, which is the highest percentage for any industry. According to military, www.military.com, the lobbyists spent $108 million in 2020 alone, according to ForeignPolicy.com. Over the past 30 years, some 530 congressional staffers that were on military-related committees left office for defense contractors. Direct quote, according to www.military.com. It's pretty damning, isn't it? Okay. In, now, here's another thing straight from this. Industry veterans dominate the Biden administration, including Secretary of Defense Lloyd Austin from Raytheon, end quote. Now, Perhaps this is the reason why Biden won't implement a no-fly zone over Ukraine to protect civilians, innocent civilians from the non-oligarch population. Okay? As far as I'm concerned, 
Lloyd, um, Lloyd Austin should not be the Secretary of Defense. He has a conflict of interest that is pretty damn close to criminal, in my opinion. We're not going to get honest government anywhere if we allow this level of incestuous conflict of interest to continue. It just won't. Now, in, by, and this keeps going. In, by 2005, some 80%, some 80% of Army generals with three stars or more, the big brass, retired, in air quotes that is, and work for arms manufacturers. And that is according to www.ucpress.edu. Now, there's regulations that prohibit this, though. In fact, the National Defense Authorization Act directly prohibits, quote, top officers from lobbying the government for two years after leaving office or leveraging personal contacts to secure contracts. End quote. But apparently, according to this, the compliance with this law is notoriously poor. So apparently, the big brass in the Pentagon can break the law left and right. But God help any of the enlisted. Okay? Hmm. This is a corrosive culture. Okay? Uh, now these NATO intellectuals, if you will, are talk. They're openly talking about the idea of infinite war. I kid you not. Uh, according to ucpress.edu, General Mike Holmes has said that um, the idea of infinite war is quote not losing; it's staying in the game and getting a new plan and keeping pursuing your objectives. End quote. Okay. The fact is, is Doc, this idea of infinite war, according to this author, isn't so much a strategy but a confession. Okay? And it is. And the fact is, NATO is pushing war, pushing arms sales, and what we need to be doing is pushing peace but having reasonable defense. So in conclusion, all right, again, watching my battery. God, doggone it. Shoot. The present war Russia's launched against Ukraine has been treated in the corporate media as a binary choice, namely Putin evil, NATO good, except that the truth of this tangled mess is far more complex and more like that eternal Gordian knot. A more accurate representation would be Putin evil and NATO evil, but in smaller denominations. As Western governments increasingly tolerate and allow what can only be considered criminal conflict of interest, we more resemble the banana republic the Democrats and Republicans mock. You know, those shithole nations. In short, the U.S. has become a shithole nation as we reward billionaire oligarchs who help stoke the fire of war so they can then profit from that same war. In previous generations, politicians implicated in such graft schemes would feign or pretend outrage over these very suggestions, but now they are blatantly, openly suggesting that we must resolve ourselves to this idea of infinite war. So just as we're being asked to accept COVID as endemic, as something we have to get used to, as part of our new reality, 
were being asked to accept infinite war, knowing that the children of oligarchs will never die on a battlefield. The Ukrainian people have been attacked mercilessly by Russia, ironically as Ukraine pleaded for admission as a NATO nation. The Ukrainian people had no idea that it was not only Putin who attacked, but NATO nations helping to incite the problem in the first place that they caused in that quest for never-ending profit. Okay, that's our story there. And, oh boy, my battery is not good. And we've been on air for a little over an hour, and I've gone from 95% to 76%. Lovely. We're going to wrap this up soon. Now we're at our Jackass of the Week feature. And our Jackass of the Week, excuse me, let me start again. I I hate being disfluent. Uh, Like Biden, I'm a stutterer at times, so kind of bear with me. Our Jackass of the Week award, this was a tough one in a way, and then it wasn't because, especially the Republican Party, there's so many that are worthy of this award. But this week, it goes to Indiana Republican Senator Mike Brown. And this is during the Supreme Court hearings of Judge Ketanji Brown-Jackson. And this was a, according to, let's see now, Salon, a piece written by Sophia Tesfaye, who is Salon's senior editor for news and politics. And According to this, you know, the the headline is Republican Senator Mike Brown says Supreme Court was wrong to legalize interracial marriage. It goes on to say interracial marriage, the Indiana Republican argued, should have been left to the state. This is that old state's rights crap. All right, the, the last trope of the avid racist. Because you know why they push states' rights? Because then they don't actually, they think they don't have to follow federal law then. They can just say, well, the feds had no right to say we have to follow certain laws. You know, people like Mike Brown, I guess they just would prefer the old, what, uh, Articles of Confederation that didn't work. Now, Mike Brown did this in front of Judge Ketanji Brown Jackson uh, in front of her and her family knowing damn well that the judge is herself in an interracial marriage, and she has lovely children from it. So he did this not only to cause a problem for her, but to insult her. Okay? Now, the decision he's talking about is the old Supreme Court decision called Loving v. Virginia. Okay? And the Loving decision was ruled on by the Supreme Court decades ago. And Brown, and this is the decision that um, basically said individual states cannot forbid, in, cannot forbid interracial marriages, as many of them did. And apparently Brown is saying that the court should have just left this up to, you know, the individual states, the old states' rights trope. Um, you know, and he called that particular decision uh, improper judicial activism. Have you ever noticed that when conservatives scream improper judicial activism, it's usually done to block the granting of rights to anyone except 
white Christian males who have property. Excuse me. So, um, oh, am I calling Brown a racist? Well, yeah. <laughs> so Brown told reporters, quote, when you want that diversity to shine within our federal system, there are going to be rules and proceedings. They're going to be out of sync with, with maybe what other states would do. It's the beauty of the system, and that's where the differences among points of view in our 50 states ought to express themselves, end quote. Senator Brown is taking the old states' rights approach to this most extreme, because if we did that, we wouldn't be the United States. We'd be 50 different countries. That's what he's suggesting. And then Brown went on to say, quote, she seems to be, she seems well qualified. She seems well qualified. She's a graduate of the Harvard Law School. She has actually worked as a trial lawyer before she became a judge. She's done just about every job an attorney can do. She's more experienced than the entire remainder of the Supreme Court in total. So what does Brown say? She seems well qualified. He goes on to say, but whenever I vote for a Supreme Court justice, it's going to be basically, how are you going to interpret the law? If your record shows you're going to be kind of an activist there, I don't think that's good, and I don't think the founders intended it that way. He continued, stick with interpreting the law. Don't legislate from the bench. Okay. End quote. So Brown goes on to not only criticize predictably wrote B. Wade, but he also went on to criticize um, an earlier decision called Griswold v. Connecticut. Now, Griswold v. Connecticut set the stage for Roe, but it set the stage by saying there's a right to privacy as regards contraceptive use. Basically, the Griswold decision that Mike Brown hates is the decision that granted women the right to use contraception across the country, period. And that was in 1965. Before that decision, many states outlawed the use of contraception. That's something young women need to understand. Okay? So apparently, Mike Brown is one of those conservative cavemen that wants to use, again, the mantra of states' rights to basically dismantle the federal government. That's what it boils down to. His jackass role was in challenging interracial marriages, knowing that Judge Katanji Brown Jackson's white husband was sitting right there. You know, I wouldn't have complained if Mr. Jackson had just hauled off and decked Brown. I would have cheered it. So this is what they're doing, and for these reasons, that's why Mike Brown is our jackass of the week. Now, a little later, Brown tried to walk back his comments, but according to Vanity Fair, he just stepped in it even, fur even further, okay? So anyway, that's our program for today. Um, I apologize for any technical issues. Yes, I'm down to 74%. Hopefully my battery will hold out. Anyway, um, that is our episode for this week. Uh, we're going to be continuing the Moscow Project. We're also going to be talking more about certain things the Supreme Court, the Supreme Court is doing. 
it's really important that we understand what these justices are doing. Often in the corporate press, they talk about, hmm, well, this judge is leaning this way, that judge is leaning this way. They don't explain what these things really mean. Uh, you can check out a series that I am writing that's, that is published on BuzzFlash, uh, and it is a series on what I call judicial capture. In fact, today there was another article written uh, that published today, and uh, the, first, the first episode of the judicial capture series dealt with these legal fictions that conservative justices on the court call legal doctrines. It dealt with the major questions doctrine and the non-delegation doctrine, trying to link them to what the founding fathers said, except they got it backwards, uh, either they're lying. And the article that published today dealt with what's called the independent states legislature's doctrine, um, which affects voting rights. I urge you to check them out. You can catch all my writing at BuzzFlash. Uh, the Environmental Justice Report will also start resume uh, programming soon. That's our show for today. Oh, good night and God bless us.